Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Starcatcher, the podcast. True stories from Hollywood's golden age. Based on the top-selling book by the same name, Starcatcher, a true-life Hollywood fantasy. John Frederick spent time with a lot of Hollywood legends during his career as a Hollywood producer and writer. We're going to meet four of them in this podcast, including Oscar-winning actor Ernest Borgnine, plus true-life stories about a man who received a Tony Award, four Primetime Emmy Awards, even won a Grammy Award, the incomparable Dick Van Dyke. Also, Academy Award-winning actress Shirley Jones, all profiled in John's marvelous book, Starcatcher, a true-life Hollywood fantasy. But we begin with a history lesson, one that you'll be familiar with if you were glued to your TV set back in 1965. It co-starred Larry Hagman and starred a true Hollywood legend from yesteryear, the lovely and talented Barbara Eden, who played a 2,000-year-old genie in the popular television show I Dream of Genie. Once upon a time, in a mythical place called Cape Kennedy, an astronaut named Tony Nelson went up on a space mission. The missile went up, but something went wrong, and they had to bring it down. Captain Nelson landed on an island in the South Pacific, where he found a bottle. At least it looked like a bottle, but it didn't act like a bottle. Because in it was a genie. Oh, not your average everyday genie, but a beautiful genie who could grant any wish. John Frederick got to know Barbara Eden and shared some memorable times with her. Barbara Eden, I'm attracted to beautiful women. I'm, I was a fan. I was, I, I can't say I spent a lot of time watching I Dream of Genie, but I was invited to the dedication of the Betty Ford Center, my wife and I. Actually, a friend of Dr. Joe Takamini, who was also there at the, at the event, brought a woman named Nancy Conway, who turned out her one of her best friends was Barbara Eden. Was it okay if Barbara Eden came? As it turned out, she had a son who had a drug problem and who unfortunately passed away because of that problem. And Barbara wanted to learn a little more about addiction, and that happened. And so we had a a really Gail and Barbara were really gorgeous blondes. And so we had lunch, we had dinner, we had we had several days with each other. We stayed in adjoining hotel rooms, just uh, as a you know just coincidence. But that made it easy to socialize, and so we did a lot of it. She it was very interesting, and and she and Gail, I got I got a picture of both of them. I call it two roses in the desert because they both were quite beautiful. But interestingly enough, her skin, she is so pale that she can't, you'll never see her with a tan. She always has to have a, be an um, under an umbrella. So we're out in Palm Springs, even though it's November, or it's still a, a hot 90 degrees. So she had to stay out of the sun. While we were there, there was a um, a publisher of a magazine that dealt with addiction who had come over. We were by the pool or maybe we were at lunch. I don't remember. But he asked if perhaps he could have an interview with Barbara, who was, as I think she won a Golden Apple, which is the most cooperative actress in the world. 
there's one or two given every year, Golden Apples by the L.A. Press Corps. And so he asked her for an interview. And so that happened. I didn't see it, but it did happen. After that, whenever I was with Barbara and Gail and Nancy, this gentleman would be in the area, seemed to be interested in the second interview or maybe something else. This kind of spooked her a little bit, I think. And so we kind of tried to stay together. It came to happen that we were, in, I think, in my in our hotel room, and we had just seen him at the swimming pool. And he, um, he was in a, um, I believe it's called a Speedo. I don't know because I don't have one. But uh, anyway, he was uh, bouncing around Barbara. Then we beat feet to my room to kind of uh, hide, as a matter of fact. So that happened, and it didn't take but a few minutes for a, a very loud knock on the door. And Barbara jumped up and said, oh, God, it's him. And she didn't want to see him. So the next thing you know, she dived across the bed and hid. And sure enough, it was him. And so. Um, he asked about her and said he had a few more questions, maybe, that he wanted to ask her. And I said that, unfortunately, she departed uh, doing a USO tour in Afghanistan or somewhere. She's not available anymore. And he must have known it was a lie. I didn't care. And he departed, and I don't think I ever saw him again, and neither did she. But I will say this about Barbara Eden. The thing about her, not only did her fans love her, Many of the things she did, including Jeannie, and some of the movies, you know, Six Weeks in a Balloon, I think was one. Uh, there was another that had to do with a, a popular song. I've forgotten the name of it, but it doesn't matter much. Uh, they could be called frivolous, but they weren't frivolous to her. Whatever she did, whether it was in the nightclub act, she could sing, she could dance, she could do anything. She took whatever it was with the mo with the greatest sincerity. And there are many, many actors who will kind of poo poo or say, Oh well, that was just yeah, it was nothing real. I just you know, I she would never say a thing like that. She took everything seriously, including being genie. And that was why I would imagine that uh, her fans to this day you can find pictures of Barbara as genie all over the internet. Hard to believe though Barbara Eden very soon will turn ninety. Uh, we're all getting older. But I guess there's a good side to that, too. And although she forgot about Jeannie for a while, both Jeannie and Barbara Eden continue to be Hollywood icons. I, I had forgotten about her, to tell you the truth, for many years after Jeannie, because I did Har uh, Harper Valley PTA and, you know, lots and lots of specials and TV movies and Las Vegas and... Uh, she got lost. And then all of a sudden, here she is again, and I'm very happy. Barbara Eden still enjoys living life to the fullest in Beverly Hills. From the genie in the bottle to an Oscar Award winner whose career started with a question from his mother. Yes, it all started with a question. Have you ever thought of becoming an actor? And I came home from World War II my mother asked me, have you ever thought of becoming an actor? You always wanted to be a, an Adelikino, a clown in front of people. 
I went ahead and became an actor. And not just an actor, but an Academy Award-winning actor whose career spanned some 65 years. Appearing in co-starring roles with some of the Hollywood greats, Frank Sinatra, James Cagney, Joan Crawford, Spencer Tracy, and many others. But it was Burt Lancaster who made a movie for United Artists back in 1955 called Marty, for which this Hollywood legend won an Academy Award. John, in your book, Starcatcher, A True Life Hollywood Fantasy, you have some wonderful stories about the great Ernest Borgnine. Ernie Borgnine, Ernie Borgnine. Ernie Borgnine probably is as unlikely a movie star as you could ever find. He was born to an Italian family, of course, almost 100 years ago now. He actually spent 10 years in the Navy. He was in the Navy from 1935 to 1941 when he his enlistment expired and he left the Navy and went back to some small jobs. And then Pearl Harbor happened and he signed up again. He served another five years. And then when World War II ended, he, uh, he left the Navy. But he didn't leave the Navy really. And that's where I first met him. When I was at the Hollywood office, I had some great jobs where I would have to go interview uh, or or shepherd people making person appearances that had to do with the Navy and so forth and so forth. And, of course, I was on movie and TV sets. In Ernie's case, he volunteered many, 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 many times for uh, Navy causes. And he, he never really – he kept in touch he was on some kind of utility vessel that did anti-submarine patrols in the Caribbean, I think, in World War II. And he kept in touch with those people. And he kept in touch with the people whose uh, the ship he was on from 35 to 41. He kept in touch with them till the end of his life. And of course, he began to run out of people eventually. He was a first-class gunner's mate, as I recall. And later, the Navy made him a an honorary master chief, which is the highest enlisted rate you can have. And so I was asked, it would be an after-work thing, and I was to take him from his home to Point Magoo, which is a, an air, naval air station up the coast. It's a fairly large space. And he agreed to speak at a, a uh, an award ceremony for an enlisted group that was honoring promotions and that kind of thing. And, and of course, he did it gratis. That was what he always did. I was to pick him up. And I, I had just really gotten to L.A. And, and of course, L.A. is a big place. And I didn't really know my way around, but I did know how to find Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive is uh, pretty famous in history, and there have been movies made about it. And so I knew how to get there, and so I found its address. This was pre-GPS, and so I drove up, and I was driving up to his house, and I was pulling in. By the way, Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson were right behind him, or in the general area there. So it's a bunch of famous Academy Award-winning movie stars all in one little quadrant there. Anyway, it was dusk twilight and ernie honest to god was hauling down his flag which flew above you know the house and he he did that every day 
And then he would put it up in the morning at colors uh, whenever, you know, he knew when to do it. And he, you do take the flag down at night. Many people fly the flag all the time. The proper procedure is to lower the flag at, at colors, twilight. I picked him up. I had a Navy car, and we drove up the coast to Point Magoo. A thing about Ernie that I found out, he was a magnet. I don't know about you, but I don't pay much attention to, to looking at other other cars and other people. But I found as people went by us, old people, children, they would see him. Somehow they would see him and wave. And, of course, he'd wave back and and just, you know, it, it was amazing. I mean, it's like they were drawn to him. So anyway, he goes up there and he does his talk and people are just knocked out. This was just after uh, McHale's Navy. So, of course, it was a big, big deal. The auditorium where they had the awards was full to the brim and, and everybody wanted to see him and shake his hand. And, and he couldn't have been a better spokesman for the Navy and or with the Navy. They, they accepted him unconditionally and he accepted them and it was just like a bunch of old friends. And so on the way home, I was very complimentary. And, you know, he was just as he seemed to be in the movies. Which, uh, by the way, he, he started, I guess, on the stage. He was a stagehand. He did some things, and he eventually he came home, and he couldn't find work after World War II. And he, he said to his mother, I can't find anything. I'm going to be an actor. And she actually supported that. And so he he did little theater. He did this. He did that. He found out he was on Broadway. He was in one of the attendants, I think, in the play Harvey, where they take one of the poor ladies off to the hospital. You know, little parts, little parts, little parts. But he ended up and he got a role in a movie uh, produced by Heck Hill Lancaster. Burt Lancaster and his partners had a, a movie company and they had this very small story and they needed someone and the budget was just tiny, very tiny, but it was called Marty, of course. And lo and behold, Ernie, who was Marty, won the Academy Award. It was a big upset. There were other very talented people. I think Spencer Tracy was on that list. John, let's go back in time to the 1956 Academy Awards given out at the Pantages Theater. Now, the presenter that night was Grace Kelly in what was to be her last Hollywood appearance. Now, let's listen to the nominees that Ernest Borgnine was up against. The nominees for Best Actor are Ernest Borgnine in Marty, James Cagney in Love Me or Leave Me, James Dean in East of Eden, Frank Sinatra in The Man with the Golden Arm, Spencer Tracy in Bad Day at Black Rock. Ernie wanted, and of course... He started by playing villains. He was very good at that. He was in From Here to Eternity, and he played Fatso, which was a very evil character who killed Frank Sinatra in the movie. So when he was on the set in the Bronx, when he was making Marty, there were some Italian uh, goodfellas that came up to him and, and wanted to punish him for killing Frank Sinatra. And he had to say, boys, it, what, I didn't really, it, it, you know, whatever. So it was, that was kind of an interesting experience. Then, of course, uh, he transitioned into TV, but he continued to do both on and off for his entire career. He would make a movie and he made a movie towards the end 
that he hadn't done in years after doing primarily television, but he worked until the last year, almost the last month of his life. He would go off and make two pictures in Yugoslavia, for example. He just loved to work. He, he loved his, his craft, and he was so good at it. You know, John, I remember back, and I believe it was 2011, that Ernie Borgnine received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Screen Actors Guild. And he was so wonderfully grateful. And he had a powerful message that night to all the actors who were in attendance and watching at home. There are millions of those in, in the world who would love to be in our shoes. We are a privileged few who have been chosen to work in this field of entertainment. There were members of our group who will be long remembered for their work and whom we still enjoy today. I hope that we will never let our dedication to our craft fail. That we will always give the best we possibly can to our profession so that people may enjoy us in later years. He was certainly the consummate professional, an actor's actor, who absolutely loved to work. And he had very little time off. But when he did, what, what he would do is he and a friend would get in a motorhome and drive around the country. They planned trips every year when he was between pictures. And he would go in and set up in a, in a little town, usually in a very small town, then he'd go around and visit people. And, of course, it became a, a magnet for everyone. He's Ernie Borgnine just down the street parked in front of the, you know, in front of the drive-in over there. And so, you know, and, of course, his ability to communicate was amazing. I went to his house probably a dozen times. And it was always a pleasure. He, he had a great collection of Lincoln memorabilia. He had pictures of his old ships, and he had a wonderful photo of Lee Marvin. He certainly played a wide range of roles. You know, Ernie started by playing heavies. He played Fatso in uh, From Here to Eternity and Bad Day at Black Rock. He was one of the evil people who uh, menaced Spencer Tracy in that movie. And that's what he did for a while. He, he could look menacing, I'll tell you. Actually, the movie he made, he was in Blackrock before he did, finished Marty, before he did it, actually. And he drove up to the location, which is way out in the California desert, up in the Sierras somewhere, the high Sierras. Lee Marvin was with him. And Ernie had brought his suitcases from New York, where he had been acting on the stage. And, and Lee Marvin was in there with him, and he had a little bag, you know, and that was it. And so he looks at Ernie's five or six suitcases, and he says, you're a New York actor, ain't you? <laughs> and, but they became good friends. And uh, later, it was after Cat Malutis, he signed it to Ernie, my, you know, my, to Ernie, my good friend, my buddy, Randolph Scott. So that was quite something. I had such a wonderful life meeting these people. And I had some opportunities that really I didn't take advantage of one way or another. And the thing I remember the most is that Ernie brought out his Oscar and handed it to me. And twice, this happened twice over, you know, months apart, 
a bunch of pictures were taken, not by Ernie or his secretary who was there, but by friends of mine. So here we are. I've got my picture with Ernie's Oscar, and I never actually got one. There were all these pictures taken, and it dawned on me years later. I asked these two friends, are you still have the negatives? Can I get one of those? They're gone, lost to history. And me winning an Academy Award is never going to happen anywhere. So that was it. That was the only low, low experience with Ernie Borgnine. We'd go out to breakfast and we'd uh, talk about movies and we'd talk about his life and we'd talk about the Navy. It was to walk up to his house, open the door and see him smile when he saw me. That was very gratifying, very gratifying. And he was the real deal, actually quite a ladies' man. Certainly he had several wives. One of them was Ethel Merman. And in her book, her autobiography, she had a, one of the chapters was titled My Life, My Marriage or My Life with Ernie Borgnine. And it was a blank page. And guess who, who told me that story? Ernie did. He thought it was funny. They were honeymooning in the Far East, and everywhere they went, they'd always say, Mikhail, Mikhail, Mikhail. In every language, no matter where they went, no one knew who Ethel Merman was. And Merman, like all great performers, had an ego. And so she, uh, she didn't like it. Ernie uh, was ill in his uh, Hong Kong room. They were already battling it out, and Ethel had some anti-nausea pills or something like that and wouldn't give them to her husband. And Ernie said, that's it. And Merman had also said, that's it. So that was the end of that. He had several other wives, and the last one was that marriage lasted quite a long time. She was um, a woman who published a book, and she had some beauty products, I believe, and so she lived in Colorado somewhere, and Ernie lived on Mulholland Drive, and they, uh, that's the secret of a happy uh, marriage many times. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. That marriage, by the way, lasted close to 40 years. Ernie Borgnine will always be remembered as the Navy's best recruiter and as a proud veteran. He visited every single veterans hospital in the United States. Ernie Borgnine passed away of lung failure at the age of 95 at Cedar Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles in July of 2012. You know, nothing lifts life like laughter. And John, you shared laughs with one of America's best. In fact, I would dare say that Dick Van Dyke who is still active at the age of 95, is our true American treasure. Dick Van Dyke, well, somebody came to me and said, we could make a movie about uh, aviation, and so we did. We, uh, it was called The Turning Point. It was about a Ray Jones, who was a radar intercept officer, a, a second-seat, back-seat guy in a F-4 Phantom. And I wrote the script, and lo and behold, through a, a friend of mine, Bob Palmer, who is responsible for many stories in Starcatcher, uh, True Life Hollywood Fantasy, Bob Palmer, who I was very close to, I said, well, 
if you'd like, I can get you Dick Van Dyke because he was his publicist. And as they say in Hollywood, it's who you know. And it turned out we, we filmed it at Miramar Naval Air Station. Uh, he took us out and we filmed some on the water. He lived in a place called California, California Cove or uh, something like that in, in the uh, in the San Diego area, right on the, on the water. Uh, we spent the day with him. Uh, then we had the shoot out at uh, Miramar. By the way, we gifted him with a flight jacket, a leather flight jacket that said Robin Crusoe USN. He had been in a Disney movie with that title. So that was something I know he must have appreciated. It's, uh, well, anyway, Van Dyke did it. He was, of course, very good. There were no problems. And Harry Flynn, who has uh, become very much a part of my life, or had already become a part of my life by inviting me to join his unit, Harry Flynn and his unit filmed the Van Dyke sequences. We shot him at Miramar, and I think I think his last line was, you know, do you know Ray Jones? Which was, you know, the character. And, and we even had a couple real fighter pilots, Duke Cunningham, who was a Navy ace, appeared in the picture. He had a lot of ham in him, and he later became a congressman. Anyhow, the Van Dyke shoot went nicely. I was just getting started in the business, so I didn't have enough sense to take some pictures of me with the actor. I, I learned then that it would be a, a nice thing to have around and to look back on. Okay, here's this probably 10 minutes of film of Van Dyke in it that ends the movie. He was narrating the whole movie, but he only appeared in the last part. So it was very necessary to have him on camera. So anyway, the first take, there was blue sky and nothing else. And the second take was more blue sky and the tail, obviously, of a jet fighter. And I'm looking at Harry, uh, and he's just very... Harry had the attitude that it'll all work out. Everything, he was very, very low-key. He's 91 years old now, and it's worked that way for him. It'll all work out. It'll all work out. Well, two more takes, and I haven't even seen, seen Van Dyke yet. And I'm beginning, I would, if I had hair, I'd be pulling it out. And I did utter um, what could be called oath, and I didn't jump up and down and make a scene, but I was home anyway. We came to the last take, and there was Van Dyke, and he said his lines, and we had a movie. But we were that close to having no ending to our movie, The Turning Point. The Turning Point ne almost never happened. The Navy probably still uses that movie, by the way, because it was quite successful and was kind of a launching pad for me because that's what started everything. I would see Van Dyke from time to time because Bob Palmer was his uh, publicist over the years, and uh, we went to the set, I think, not a Dick Van Dyke show, which was history by then, but he had another show, and we went. He had uh, a, a show that was uh, his second show that, that, believe it or not, was on longer than the Dick Van Dyke show. We went out to the set. It was in a warehouse in the San Fernando Valley, and a lot of television shows are not shot in studios. There are dollar amounts involved, so we went there and we had a nice lunch. I spent the day with Van Dyke, and. 
we, there were other occasions where we would bump into each other. He, he did several things for us. He, he narrated a, a cassette called uh, A Day at a Time along with Julie Harris. And that was uh, something I was very proud of. We got together a few times. I was not a great friend of his. And everybody, everybody wanted to know uh, when they heard out that I had had some interchange with Van Dyke. What's Dick Van Dyke really like? And my answer is, I have no idea. What you see is what you get, I guess. I remember a story about Mary Tyler Moore, who had the dressing room next to Van Dyke when they were doing that show. And she could hear Van Dyke through the wall uh, saying, hello, kiddo, to about nine people, one of whom was his wife. And so he is beloved. And Carl Reiner, had one of the great, when Lucille Ball died, his wife Estelle said, oh my, look at all the people who are just saying goodbye to, to Lucy. And just, what a memorial, isn't it wonderful? And Carl Reiner had produced the Dick Van Dyke show. He said, just wait till Dick dies. And that's a little Jewish humor, I think. But uh, it's hilarious. And in fact, Dick didn't die. <laughs> Back he's in his 90s. We had another actor, producer, uh, named Norman Lloyd, who died the other day at 106. It appears that Dick may tie him. I don't know. He's well on his way. And everybody loves him. Well, you know, John, not only is Dick Van Dyke loved by everyone for his television roles, but he also starred in some very memorable big screen movies, including Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, what we'll do near, far, in a motor car, oh, what a happy time we'll spend. Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, our fine four fender friend. The legend that is Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> this book, Starcatcher, a true life Hollywood fantasy, is absolutely filled with so many captivating behind the scenes stories of so many Hollywood icons. I want to find out from you, John, why you wrote this book and what went into it. But before we do that, let's find out about another Academy Award winner who you had a very special lunch with, the amazing Shirley Jones. Well, let's see. My meeting with Shirley Jones consisted of a lunch. I had a lot of those. I had a lunch with Tony Hopkins. I had a lunch with Ernie Borgnine. I had a lunch with Jason Robards, uh, Joe Tacomini, Dr. Tacomini. He had uh, evidently been her doctor also, so I was allowed to accompany him for the luncheon date with, with Shirley. And she was, and I just saw her on TCM the other night speaking about Oklahoma. We had some, you know, talk about the movies she was in, and she had been married to an actor named Jack Cassidy, who died in a in a fire that I think had to do with uh, falling asleep. That was a tragic thing. And she was married to uh, Marty Ingalls, a comedian who was a very energetic, kind of uh, hyper kind of comedian. And I asked her, Shirley was blonde and beautiful, and Marty was uh, Marty was neither. What was the attraction? with that with marty i mean and she said he makes me laugh that's the most important thing to me he makes me laugh jack made me laugh so it was just light conversation nothing major but again a quality person born in a small town 
had a small town attitude and a, a kind of an awe at what had happened to her and was just the real Shirley Jones. You got what was there. And what was there, John, took her to the stage at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium back in 1961 and the 33rd Annual Academy Awards. Let's listen and remember as Oscar-winning actor Hugh Griffith reads the nominees. Now it is my privilege to say that uh, the nominees for best performance by an actress in uh, a supporting role are Glynis Johns for The Sundowners, Shirley Jones for Elmer Gantry, Shirley Knight for The Dark at the Top of the Stairs, Janet Lee for Psycho, and Mary Ewer for Sons and Lovers. And the chosen of these is Shirley Jones. Now at the age of 87 and a grandmother of 10, Shirley Jones still resides in Los Angeles. You know, John, after listening to all these stories from your book, Starcatcher, A True Life Hollywood Fantasy, I'm certainly interested, as I am sure those listening to this podcast are, how and when did you decide to pull back the curtain on your interactions with the Hollywood elite and write this amazing and entertaining book? Because when I started to think about it, I, I started to review my life, of course, as you, as you grow older. And I had been so fortunate. I had been placed by the Navy in Hollywood, and I'd always dreamed of going to Hollywood. And now, and now I was being paid for it by the Navy, and I got to go on movie sets and movie stars and all of that. And all these things happened to me over years. And, and of course, then I became involved in the, in, the, in the business itself. I had a production and distribution company uh, that was in business for, uh, still in business, 48 years later. It was something I just wanted to, you know, share with others, if, if only with my family, you know, something to leave behind writing a book it was three or four years ago and we lived in what i considered a very contentious and divisive chaotic time and i thought god wouldn't it be nice to go back to go back to an age where we had movie stars that we loved and sports stars that we idolized and who played for love of the game because money was nothing they earned peanuts you wouldn't believe the salaries they used to get uh, the highest major league salary I remember in the 50s and 60s, $125,000. Warren Spahn won 364 games, and his highest salary was $65,000 a year. So, and also there were military heroes that I would meet in these around the movie business and so forth, and political figures that I had known to. Uh, uh, we, I was fortunate enough to go to the dedication to Betty Ford Center, and uh, George W. Bush was there, and of course, um, President Ford and his wife, Betty, and, and I, I later, I met them, and I began, I knew them some, and so all these things I wanted to, to get down, which, by the way, even though the title of the book is Starcatcher, True Life Hollywood Fantasy, it just isn't about Hollywood. It's about these sports figures, Muhammad Ali, 
and others that I met. It's about uh, Warren Spahn and Ernie Banks and pitched from the, the mound at Dodger Stadium with uh, Cy Youngman or Bob Welch and, and Hollywood Henderson. I met him a football player and I ran in Texas Stadium. I ran around kicking footballs and catching passes and I couldn't get up the next morning. I was 45 years old and what the hell did I think I was doing? And politicians I met, presidents I met. Uh, I met Nixon. I met. I didn't meet well, I meet Harry Truman, but I saw him speak. And so I wanted those to be in the in the book also. And I thought, you know, that's a story that a lot of people would want to read. And besides, they might want to look back and think when times were, let's put it this way, the fifties might have been boring, but they were tranquil and they were comfortable, and people weren't afraid, and people weren't didn't hate each other as much, and it just was. A, I don't know, just a better world, I think. And so I wanted to recapture that, uh, that, that nostalgia, that feeling of nostalgia. As a matter of fact, someone came up to me who had a copy of the book, and he said, you know, when I was a kid, movies and TV were the biggest thing. I, I had a kind of a rough childhood. And when I read your book, I, it took me right back to my childhood. I could feel the same feeling. And if I never get another compliment, I'll remember that one until I die. That was very, very touching to me. And that's why I wrote it. I wrote it as a distraction. I wrote it about a time and people you could feel good about. That's why I did it. Well, as they say in Hollywood, that's a wrap. For this edition of Star Catcher, the podcast, true stories from Hollywood's golden age, as told by the man who was there when they said it. John Frederick, a distinguished Hollywood producer who has some 50 films and documentaries to his credit and is the author of the best-selling book by the same name, Starcatcher, a true-life Hollywood fantasy, which is available at Amazon and wherever popular books are sold. Now, we certainly hope that you've enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, there's something you can do for us. Number one, you can subscribe or follow our podcast. Secondly, leave a review. We'd love to find out what you think about our podcast. And third, by all means, share this with your friends. And speaking of friends, Starcatcher is a great gift idea for those who remember the golden age of Hollywood. Now, in the next edition of Starcatcher, the podcast, we'll revisit John's special moments with major sports celebrities, including Muhammad Ali, Hollywood Henderson, Warren Spahn and Tiger Woods. Until next time, I'm Neil Scott. Hooray for Hollywood!